Hi folks, welcome to Fig Tree Ministries. Make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel by clicking that red subscribe button below and click that bell to make sure you get notified every time we upload a new video. Enjoy today's lesson. So as you can see from your screen, we're going to be doing the Pharisee and the tax collector. What I wanted to do, well here, let me let me go through this a minute. If you want to open your Bible to Luke 18, 9 to 14, that's where the parable is found. And we're essentially going to be staying there most of the time. Um, even the times that I show you some different scriptures, I'm just going to do them real quick, and they're on your sheet, and that you can go back and look at them later. But uh, that's where you find the parable. So I want to give you the backstory of what led up to doing this parable today. So a few weeks ago, we did a class on what we called baseless hatred, and then the idea of forgiveness. So the just a quick review of that class, Jesus showed up with a, a message of forgiveness. He says, look, you need to forgive your brother. Your brother's going to upset you at some point. You need to practice forgiveness. That gets rejected, and when the temple is destroyed ultimately in 70 AD, as the rabbis are looking back on that time and they say, what was it? Why did God allow his temple to be destroyed? Their answer that they came up with was because of unqualified or baseless hatred. Meaning, within Judaism, there were so many factions fighting against one another that it turned into a war, and then, of course, God's house being destroyed. So, and that's a very powerful message, because there's a tendency, as we'll see today, within human, the human condition, that baseless hatred can creep up. Uh, and, of course, Jesus wants us to practice forgiveness. And so anyways, this is where, I, where we get to today. So I was telling, uh, she's, a, she's a mentor of mine. I was telling this mentor of mine, she's very sharp spiritually. I was talking about this baseless hatred idea, and I was explaining a little bit of the class and, and about, you know, the power of forgiveness and everything. And so what she did, and without me even recognizing that she did it, she just very quietly asked me, well, what are some things that you hate? And of course, I answered, you know, because I wasn't even thinking about what she's doing, but she knew what she, where she was going, and she wasn't trying to do it like... Um, trying to trick me or anything. But anyways, so we got into this discussion about how things can creep up. And so what we, what we ended up talking about was this idea that even in my class about baseless hatred, as we're talking about it, you all, I'm always talking from me or us to them. It's like the, you can't help it. So this idea that we're always, when, when we start to talk about something like that, you can end up very easily making it about them, the other, right? So when she asked me, she said, hey, what are some things that you hate? The things that came to mind were this. So I, you know, I don't, the election season will just drive you nuts, right? So when she asked me about it, I was thinking of this election season and politics and my answers were something like lying, 
trickery, deceit. Those are things that upset me. I don't like seeing that. Now, if you look at that list, all of us would say, well, that's a good thing. Those are all things that are, you know, you, sh you ought to be upset about, right? The problem is, so if I'm looking at those lying, trickery, deceit, and I end up getting a root of, say, hatred or anger or something that's causing me to be upset, the problem is lying, trickery, and deceit aren't just abstractions out there by themselves, right? They always involve somebody else. And then her question to me was, well, are you being lied to directly? And I was like, no, not directly. Like nobody's. So anyways, it got into this really, it got into this discussion and it dawned on me that if you allow anything, and her point to me was, look, Jesus wants anything that causes you to be upset, anything that would draw anger. Because if you allow that upset or anger or anything, even if it's righteous, because that's the point we'll get to in a minute, things can start to unravel. So, of course, that list is not things that we don't like, but the point is we always attach it to a them. So, for instance, this is what we ended up on. She said, look, it's so easy for human beings to build a wall of self-righteousness. And we do it in an instant. And we say, I'm on this side, and I'm kind of looking over this wall at you, or them. And what happens, and this is, and I think this is what Jesus wants us to avoid, is when you start to look at another people group as them, they become smaller, their humanity shrinks, their humanity diminishes, right? So in order for the Nazis to get their people to commit genocide, you had to diminish the other person, the humanity, right? So that Jews were no longer human beings and therefore you could exterminate them. And that, of course, leads to, this is where all the danger comes in is when we begin to go, go into an us-and-them attitude, and we look down, diminishing someone's humanity, it can lead to all kinds of problems very quickly. And what it dawned on me was how quickly I can put up a wall of self-righteousness without saying, when I, if I did a lesson on baseless hatred, we could talk about baseless hatred, and then I'd have to say, how am I affected by it, right? That's, that was her point. All of us end up doing this. So it's not isolated. It happens anywhere there's a human being. In fact, if you remember, well, I know you all remember that in Rwanda, there was a genocide in 2000, uh, no, I'm sorry, 1994. So in 1994, the, the genocide in Rwanda, what a lot of people don't know is Rwanda at the time, and I don't know how they measure exactly this, but it was something like 90 to 93% Christian. So you have a, essentially a Christian country, and the genocide happened inside churches with clergy committing the, the, the criminal acts. In fact, the Catholic Church of Rwanda came out in 2016 and issued an apology for how the churches got involved in the planning and the, the murder of people that had not done anything to them, right? So you can see, even in our church history, right? how many subgroups of Christianity get, get persecuted by the larger group. So I just want to point out, this happens to everybody. It happens so quickly, 
and it will go above your belief in God and what's right or wrong, uh, because we can begin to justify things. Okay, so all of that, as her and I are talking about this, and it's dawning on me, oh yeah, Jesus wants us to root out anything that makes us upset, because that's where things start to go awry. This parable came to mind, and I thought, oh, this is genius. This is the parable. So I wanted to tell you that I got caught up in it myself, and I, with placing myself on one side and pointing at them, but then this parable is going to speak to this idea that human beings, in an instant, all of us can pop a wall of self-righteousness up and look at other people and say, you know, look, and, and end up looking down on them, and that's the danger Jesus doesn't want us to do. So we'll look at this in detail today. And I hope it challenges you to think about what Jesus is trying to, the message he's trying to convey. But let me give you what, this is what I think, and other scholars point this out too, um, but I think the main point is exactly what I was just talking about. Jesus is going to talk about self-righteousness, and that's what I think the primary is. Secondary, and this is where most of us see it, because we think theologically, is all of the all of the things about atonement or forgiveness or justification. That is obviously in there. The question is, though, is that the primary reason for a parable? Because parables are always told for something difficult, not something that's easy or many people would understand. So this is where I want to go today. You'll judge whether I'm able to draw all of that out of this parable. So primarily self-righteousness, secondarily some systematic theology. All right, so what I want to do now is go ahead and turn, well, if you already opened your Bible, to Luke, and we're just going to read through it. It's very short. I'll go through it, and then we're going to go line by line and pull out some details so that you get a bigger picture of what might be going on in the minds of the people that Jesus is talking to. And what I want you to do, as I read through the parable, I want you to notice what's going on internally, what's happening in your mind, what are you thinking about? So, because, well, just do that, and then we'll, we'll get to the end. All right, so here's verse 9. To some who th- were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Verse 13. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, rather than the other one, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. All right, that's the short, well, that's not the shortest parable we've done, but it's a short parable. Now, before we get into this, because it's a parable, let's just talk about what's going on here. The first thing is, it's always done in story. So, it's a story 
that's made up. And this is so hard for me on this. I just, it's like every time I read it, I picture that it's actually happening. Nope. Jesus is making, he pulls the characters for a reason. He creates the dialogue for a reason. He controls the details. So everything is in there for the distinct purpose of why he's telling this parable. Now we'll go into what would the audience have seen based on some cultural aspects that they would understand that we don't. But again, it's, he's, he's telling a story and he wants to draw you right in. And I think we all get sucked right into this story. Now, the story, of course, carries a truth. That's what a parable does. It carries the truth so you can then process it and think about it with the use of the story. And of course, he's going to add a twist and a shock because nothing ends up like we think it should be. And that's his whole point of using a parable is he wants to get your, your, he wants to jar you mentally, right? As we go through this, just remember he's in charge of the details. Okay, so let's go back now. What I'm going to do is go sentence by sentence. Now, I gave you something a little bit different this week. On the front page of your uh, handout is the entire parable, and then I put little, um, I put notes next to the things we're going to talk about. And then if you flip the page over, you'll find the same notes. So whether you look at your front page or the back page, you can follow along. Okay, so starting out, Jesus starts out, Notice this isn't part of the parable, but it's an introductory statement to the parable. And it's genius. This is such a genius sentence. Look how it starts. To some. Now, who's some? Who's the some? To some who were confident in their own righteousness and look down on everywhere else. Now, who's this parable directed at? Immediately. If I had to guess, if I had said everyone type in an answer, my guess would be that you would assume it's the Pharisees, because that's just what we assume, right? We assume this sentence, those who were confident in their own righteousness, describes the Pharisees, so it must be directed at the Pharisees. But a Pharisee is a character in it, right? So you'd have to ask, well, why would Jesus include a Pharisee in a parable about because normally when he does a parable about the priests, or he'll, he'll use a, a stand-in. But anyways, what's he up to? What's this, this opening sentence? I think, it's, I think the genius is its ambiguity. So we're going to talk about who's this directed at. To some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Okay, next sentence. Two men went up to the temple to pray. Now. That, to us, doesn't mean a whole lot, but we would say, I went to church to worship. Now, if I say, I went to church to worship, you picture the whole church service as the worship service. But in biblical times, they would say, I went to the temple to pray. Same thing, it's a worship service happening. Now, the thing is, is that if I, if I said, I went to the temple and or if I, went to, if I went to church to worship, then what time of day, what day of the week? You would assume, unless it's, a, you know, a, some churches have different services, you would assume, oh, that's a Sunday morning, sometime between 9 and 10, maybe 11. So when you see this sentence right here, 
two men went up to the temple to pray. That's 3 p.m. in first century prayer time. Every day at 3 p.m., there's a sacrifice. Well, let me put it this way. Every day, there's two community sacrifices, 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. So this one is going to go to 3 p.m., and I'll show you why Luke tells us it does. But let me ask you this. Just think about this. The day, Jesus of day, the day of Jesus' death, he was put on the cross at 9 a.m., and he died at 3 p.m. Now, do you think that is a coincidence? No way. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell you the times. Why? Because Jesus becomes the daily sacrifice. If you want to pray for forgiveness to get back into graces with God, it's through Jesus that we pray, right? Bonnie insists that we end every prayer with, in Jesus' name. So he becomes, it's no coincidence that he was put on the cross at 9 a.m. and he died at 3 p.m. because that matches the daily service. Okay, so the two men go up to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee. The other, a tax collector. Now, right there, all of the emotional issues that you have with either Pharisee or tax collector are coming to the surface, and that's what he's going to catch you on. Now, I want to talk about the time to pray. I'm just going to do this real quick, but I put it on your sheet. At some point, go check out Acts 3, verse 1. And remember, Luke also wrote the book of Acts. So Acts 3, verse 1 says this, one day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. So at least this detail is explained here. Now, there's another detail in Acts. Acts 10, verse 3, is Cornelius is praying. What time is he praying? 3 p.m. Why is he praying at 3 p.m.? Because that's the time of the daily sacrifice. And the importance of this, to understand this, is if you don't live in Jerusalem, if you can't make it to a daily sacrifice or to, a, to, any, to any of the services, say you live in Babylon or Rome or Ephesus or Alexandria, Egypt, well, you know every single day there's a sacrifice happening for the community, and you can stop and pray at that moment. And because obviously you can't, you can't go to you can't leave, sail from Rome to Jerusalem every time you unintentionally sin, you know, to offer a sacrifice. You may never get to Jerusalem, but every day there's a sacrifice being given to God. So it becomes a really important sacrifice. Now, we also know this from history. There's records of the daily sacrifice called the Tamid. I put that on your handout. So if you ever want to look up the Tamid. So anyways, let me show you a little bit, at least give you an idea of where this is happening. So this today is if you stand on the Mount of Olives and you look to the west, great time to go stand on the Mount of Olives is when the sun is rising in the morning because you get this beautiful sunlight on the uh, Temple Mount and that mosque in the middle of the Temple Mount. The Temple Mount was built by Herod the Great. So where this white line, I'm just putting some outlines so you can see that Temple Mount was in, there in the time of Jesus. Then right in the middle of that Temple Mount, where this mosque is today, stood God's house, God's temple. 
So that's what it looks like today. So when it says they went up to the temple to pray, they go into the temple mount and into the temple area. And I'll show you that in a second. This is an artist rendering. The red line right here is that corner I just showed you. And then, of course, right in the middle of where the, that temple mount area, oh, by the way, it's about, I think, 13 or 16 football fields large. It's a huge place, is this temple right there. So they would have gone inside that temple. Um, just to help you orient, the western wall is on this side, right there. So that, that today is where the holiest place is, the western wall. In Jesus' parable, they're going up to the temple. This is what it would look like. Everybody's familiar with it. And then here is an example of Herod's temple. Now, again, it looks like a, you know, you're trying to read an eye chart in the doctor's office, and I apologize for that. That is about two and a half football fields. So that's a large space. Right in the middle, you have an altar. That's where you're going to put the sacrifice after they've made the sacrifice. And I just want to show you where the, at least the Pharisee would be standing. It's called the court of the Israelites, and that means the Israelite men. And it's a fairly narrow spot just inside what's called the court of the women. And that's the court of the women is open to men as well, but there's a gate that takes you right into the, to the, um, to the court of the Israelites. So one of the questions you have is, the Pharisee surely would have gone inside the gate, but what about the tax collector? Where would he have stood? Because they're going to describe he stood at a distance. Now, we have no idea, but I think that distance is more hyperbole to tell you how he's standing to God, not so much where he's at in the temple. But we assume with the parable, the tax collector can see, I'm sorry, the Pharisee can see the tax collector. Okay, let's go back to the text here. So when they went up to the temple to pray, 3 p.m., they go into that temple where you're going to offer a sacrifice, the priests are going to offer a sacrifice on behalf of the community. So that's a key phrase right there. Now, let me just show you real quick. I told, I've already told you this, but there's a daily sacrifice. It's a daily sacrifice for the, on behalf of the community, for the community. Funded, from what I understand, by the temple tax, the annual temple tax. So again, if you live away from Jerusalem, even in Galilee, you can at 3 p.m. pray, and there's a sacrifice happening at the temple. So it comes from Exodus, and I'm just going to show you this real quick, but you can go back and read this. I put it on your sheet, and it just says this. This is what you're to offer on the altar regularly each day. Two lambs a year old. One in the morning, that becomes 9 a.m., and one at twilight. Now, the moment you see the word twilight, all of us have a different conception of twilight. We think sometime after sundown before it gets too dark. That's our twilight. That's not what that word means. That's a, it's a tough, it might not be a wrong interpretation or translation, but when we interpret it to the time of day, we don't necessarily think 3 p.m. But that word right there would come out 3 p.m., and that's exactly what they did every day. So, 9 a.m., 3 p.m., and this is the commandment in Exodus where you see that. All right, so back to the text. They're going up to the temple to pray. It's 9 a.m., or I'm sorry, sorry, 3 p.m. By the way, Luke starts his gospel with Zechariah at 3 p.m. 
He's administering the sacrifice, or he's administering the service inside the temple, the incense, and uh, then that's when he meets the angel. Sorry, let's go back to the text. Verse 11, the Pharisees stood by himself and prayed. Now, you see a quick picture of where he would have gone inside that temple, and assuming there's a crowd there, well, you can't stand too far by himself. So it seems like this, to stand by yourself, Jesus tells a number of parables where someone is, I, he thought to himself, and that in the ancient Near East or in, the, in, in Israel means you're, step, you're moving yourself out of the community. So this is probably hyperbole. The Pharisee, right, he, he says, look, I don't, I don't want to be, I don't want to get involved with those people, right? So it's more of an attitude than it is maybe physical distance, but maybe he is, you know, Jesus wants you to think of him standing alone. But it could be much more of a hyperbole to say, look, I'm, I'm, I'm outside the community. I'm going to ignore my community that I'm supposed to be in. So he stood by himself, prayed out loud. So you can imagine everyone else hearing him pray. God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Now think back to what we talked about, how I opened up this, this, par- this lesson today, is what happens when we turn people into others, right? And then look at his response. Robbers, evildoers, and adulterers. Now, all of those are violations of God's commandments, and that would be justified. You'd say, yeah, I don't want to be like them either. But the moment you say other people, you've now, you've put a wall of self-righteousness up and you're separating yourself. Now, robbers, evildoers, adulterers. Sure, we could find commandments that say don't steal, don't commit adultery. But what about the tax collector? Is there a commandment to not be a tax collector? So, When we hear this parable, what is your immediate assumption about the tax collector? That everybody assumes he's guilty, right? And when when we begin to assume that someone is guilty just by their, say, their job, you're now playing God. We begin to, you know, judge not lest you be judged type thing. Watch out when we start assuming the tax collector is guilty. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. But I think the reason that they're separating that tax tax collector, because there isn't necessarily a commandment against being a tax collector. And if you automatically assume they're evil, now you're falling into what Jesus is talking about here. So I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. And those are just going above and beyond what's said in the text. And that's He's using hyperbole to take you to show how great this Pharisee is. Okay, now we get to the tax collector. But the tax collector stood at a distance. Now again, is that physical distance or is it some kind of spiritual distance, right? The tax collector is standing at a distance from God. And one thing I I find really interesting about this, I put this on your sheet. The word for sacrifice, so that daily sacrifice that's happening at 3 p.m. where this tax collector is assumed standing somewhere nearby, that, day, that sacrifice is called a korban or korbanot. 
Now, Corbin is also used in our New Testament as making an, making an oath, but it comes from the same idea. So the word for sacrifice is korban. Now, the word means to come near. So when you see this list of sacrifices in the Old Testament, what's the whole point? It's how, it's the mechanism through which you come near to God. You have a holy God, and we're not holy, and so we have to do a ritual that says, God, I recognize that I should be paying the penalty for this sin, but instead, I'm offering up an, an alternative. You accept that, and I move, use that mechanism to come closer to God. Well, what's Jesus to us? He's that sacrifice. He's the daily sacrifice through which we get access to come closer to God. It's the same concept. So that word korban, korbanot, which is the plural, to come near. Okay. So it could be this idea of he's standing, he's distanced from God, and what he wants is that sacrifice to allow him to come near to God. Because watch how, watch how this unfolds. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, and then this is, this is going to be a key phrase, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Now, every, I would guarantee you, unless you have the Young's literal translation, your Bible probably says mercy. And Kenneth Bailey points out in his book, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, that's not a great translation, even though almost every Bible puts translates it mercy, because if you did it literally, it sounds awkward. But let me show you what I mean. That word for mercy that shows up here is actually a word that means atonement. So here's the Greek word, halaskomai, and that word doesn't mean mercy. It's not the normal word for mercy. It's atonement. Now you could say, well, we're dealing with the same thing, and I agree, but I think there's a, this takes it deeper. That daily sacrifice could be used for atonement for minor infractions, unintentional sins. So when the tax collector goes up to that sacrifice, does that mean he's guilty? Does it mean he overtly committed a sin? Or does it mean, hey God, if I unintentionally sinned, you know, you, you really have to start weighing this idea of what's going on here. So let me show you one thing. If you're in Luke 18, look down at verse 30, or I'm, yeah, verse 38 of Luke 18. The reason I want to show you this is in verse 38, uh, a blind man says to Jesus, uh, have mercy on me. Now there, he uses a different word. It's the normal word for mercy. So Luke clearly knows the difference. And if he wanted it to mean mercy in the normal sense, he would have used a different word. That's my point. So some scholars would say, look, you can kind of paraphrase this because it's difficult to move it into English. What it seems that the tax collector is asking for is let that sacrifice be for me. Not mercy in the sense that we think about it. Let the sacrifice be for me. Now, why would he be asking that? Well, what did the, what does, what do the religious leaders particularly do to the tax collectors within community? They marginalize them. You're no longer allowed to participate in the, the religious community, and therefore, you don't get access to God. Now, 
that would be not a good thing for religious leaders to do, to marginalize certain people groups. So next week, we're going to look at Zacchaeus, because that's the next chapter. Zacchaeus is also a tax collector. He's marginalized by the community. We'll see how Jesus addresses that and in, in a very powerful way. But it seems to be that what the tax collector wants is he wants that sacrifice to be for him. And we automatically make him guilty. And, of course, the way Jesus is going to end this parable, you'd have to say, well, maybe he's not guilty because he got justified. So, anyways, we'll, we'll do more on tax collector ne- next week. But it's just, it, it's something to point out about the way we often translate our Bible um, sometimes doesn't always come across as deep as we need it to be. Okay, verse uh, 14, last verse. He says, I tell you, this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. Now, that's usually what we focus on, and there's nothing wrong with that. But then he adds this sentence. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. Why add that sentence in about being humble, right? So, We started off the parable with an opening sentence that said, to some who were confident in their own righteousness, and he finishes it with, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. It's talking about the same thing. It's talking about this idea of self-righteousness. Those who would think of themselves self-righteously. What happens when we put up a wall of self-righteousness and we point out other? Well, it can lead to all kinds of bad things, as history throughout the world has shown us. So, this is where the genius, I think it's absolutely genius what Jesus does. Now, remember, it's a parable. So, what he, Jesus doesn't need a parable to talk about the ritual stuff. They all know that. He needs a parable to point out something very deep, right? So, he's He wants you to think. He's going to cause you to make a self-discovery through the parable. So it's not necessarily a dialogue about systematic theology. No doubt those things are in there, but he wants to show us something. And so I watch, because watch how Jesus does the dialogue. It's genius. The Pharisee, right? What does he have the Pharisee say? I'm glad I'm not like that guy. And the moment we read the parable... What do me and you and everyone else who reads the parable say to ourselves? I'm glad I'm not like that guy. The parable is told in a way that causes us to do the exact thing that the Pharisee's doing. It's brilliant. I mean, it's so amazing that Jesus did that, right? In fact, if we go back to this idea, you know, it causes everybody, even if it's unconscious, you can't help it because you think, well, I'm not like that guy over there, which is exactly what the Pharisee's doing. So it's just genius how he does this. And, you know, if you think about it, so much of what, you know, has happened in our church has been exactly this, you know, how we, I mean, I don't know, have you ever met somebody who does this, who, who you know, talks about other people or looks down on them or even a Christian or you can see times in the church? especially about Pharisees themselves, because the word Pharisee has become a pejorative in Christian lingo. 
So if we go back to this sentence right here, the very first sentence, and this is what I think is to some, who's the some? Who's the parable directed at? I think it's directed at all of us, right? We assume it's the Pharisee, but I think it's directed at everybody. I think the moment you read it, even the disciples would have thought, well, I'm glad I'm not like that guy. Anybody in the crowd would have thought, I'm not like that guy. So it's just a genius way to get you to recognize that we do the same thing. Now, it reminded me of, there's a, um, who's an animator for Walt Disney named uh, Walt Kelly. Walt Kelly made a cartoon back in the 70s, and the cartoon said, we have met the enemy, and it is us, right? And it reminds me of that, that phrase, like, once we realize who he's pointing this at, oh, it's me. I'm the one who, you know, this parable can go right along with that lesson on baseless hatred. Because it tells us the moment we talk about those other people and baseless hatred, you got to ask yourself the question, what are the things that you hate? And where can that lead you, right? It's dangerous paths if we don't address those. So this is, I think this is what the parable does. It causes you to put up that wall of self-righteousness, whether you know it or not, we're not we're not accusing anybody, and I'm the, I'm the worst. I do it every time I read the parable. We automatically then talk about the other people as them. I'm glad I'm not like that guy. And of course, the moment we talk us and them, it diminishes the person's humanity on the other side. We lose sight that they're a human being. And if we need a reminder, go back to Rwanda, where it's the, the massacre is happening in, within the churches. Uh, Baptists were persecuted in the past. Anabaptists were persecuted in the past. It's like, who wasn't persecuted by another Christian in the past? So, it's genius. I think this is, it's one of the, it, anyways, it, it, it hits a human being so deep we miss it. Now, I don't want to just open up a wound and then say, okay, you know, what do you think of that? We need to talk about what are the actions that Jesus wants us to do that help fight against this, because it's going to happen. It's a natural thing that happens to human beings. So I'm going to suggest at least two things that we can practice, and of course you'll find them all over the New Testament. One of them is to practice humility, because it's not being humble that says, I'm so different from that guy over there. It's the lack of humility can make me think I'm better than that person over there. So practicing humility. Um, how do we do that? Well, you do it through charity or through giving, reaching out and helping those who are in in a more dire circumstance than you are, serving with zero expectation of getting anything in return, serving those who are less fortunate than you. When you do that, when you go to service, especially serving, say, even the homeless, you know, you intentionally go into a posture of being subservient to them, and it helps you look up to them and see more of their humanity. It's a really cool thing. It's like Jesus washing the feet, right? He didn't have to wash the feet, but he did it anyways as, a, as an object lesson. And when you, when you bend down below somebody to serve them, it helps you see more of their humanity for what it is without judging them. That's So practice humility. The final one, of course, practice forgiveness. And that goes right back to the same thing about the message on the uh, basis hatred, 
that the antidote to baseless hatred and the antidote to putting up a wall of righteousness is forgiveness. So the moment we see somebody that just differs with us, before we judge, practice forgiving them. And it's tough. And it takes a, a while. It's a process that takes a while, but it's, and it takes practice, right? And you're, but it's the, it's the path to, to peace to not lose sight of somebody's humanity. So, okay. I think it's just a brilliant parable. Hopefully, I was able to show it to you in a slightly different light that pulls something out of it. And I think there's obviously a lesson in here for all of us because we can, we can fall, into that, fall into that trap so quickly. I mean, it's so quick that we don't even notice that it's happening. Anyways, okay, so that's the Pharisee and the tax collector. Let me stop the share. You're all going to come back on. There's everybody. Thanks for joining us under the fig tree for today's lesson. If you like this video, be sure to hit the like button below. And make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel and hit that bell to be notified every time I upload a new lesson. You can also check out more teachings here at our YouTube channel or at figtreeteaching.com and enjoy learning about the sweetness of God's words.